How do you get to grips with your screenplay? How do you overcome writer's block? I'm joined by Sean Drummond and Matthew Khalil on the Three Wells podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host and film critic, Spling. In this episode, we'll discuss the ins and outs of screenwriting with our renowned guest through the lens of Matthew's book, The Three Wells of Screenwriting. Sean Drummond is a writer and producer who has a wealth of writing experience from feature documentaries, Lost Prophets and Outsider, to shorts, Sweetheart and Wide Open. His debut feature film, a gritty African western named Five Fingers for Marseille, caught the world's imagination in the wake of Black Panther. The in-demand screenwriter is currently busy with several projects, including the period-set Miami fantasy The Blue Lady, a TV drama Acts of Man, and an adaptation of acclaimed South African sci-fi Apocalypse Now Now. Matthew Khalil is an author, lecturer, and screenwriter with over 20 years of experience in directing, editing, and writing for film. The versatile and influential writer has continued to sharpen his craft through script editing, acting, and coaching the filmmakers of tomorrow. His inspirational and empowering new book, The Three Wells of Screenwriting, offers a fresh perspective and cross-section of his broad and deep understanding of film when it comes to the writing process. Over to you, Matthew. Thanks, Sling. So, welcome, Sean. Thanks. Good to be here. Sean is one of these guys on the podcast who actually is an ex-student of mine, and he was one of those guys <laughs> who I remember reading his script, and I, and you get these students occasionally, you're like, okay, I can't teach this guy much. I remember very well, that there was something with shadows and mm. these tall creatures. and yeah. Yeah. I remember it had very evocative images. Mm. I was just like really struck by the visual kind of tone yeah. of your writing at that stage. Yeah, That's early, you. early stage. Yeah. I was going to say, when you were reading the bio, you were my first screenwriting teacher back in the day. So here we are, full circle. Something set in the Drakensberg and kind of rural area reminds me of Five Fingers in some ways. Uh, And I just want to have a a look at the trailer of Five Fingers. (laughs) Yeah, with the two, we try to do the two trailers and have them very different from each other and just focus on different. So this was the first teaser that went out and it was a lot a lot more hooked into the angst and like the thrill and the mm-hmm. mystery of it as an immediate 
sort of sell and then the and the tonal that sort of slow burn simmering mm-hmm. tone and then with the second one was the biggest story one where we introduced the kids sort of hook people with the first one hopefully and then give a bigger context which was kind of the approach of the whole movie actually we mm-hmm. wanted it to be something where a south african western is kind of an interesting hook but we didn't want it to be gimmicky and sort of like um thin so the hope was that people would come to watch something that was quite an intriguing hook and then get something that was a lot bigger and richer and thicker. I remember you, you mentioned it as like... We're major in, motion picture. That was a... Major motion a picture. Major I remember that. And just picture. watching this um, this trailer now again, I mean, I get a little bit of goosebumps because of the, the images, which do, you know obviously don't translate on this podcast, are just so rich and so vast. And it's really like, you know, when you watch this trailer, when I watch this trailer, definitely I feel like it's a mo- major motion mm, picture. Sweeping epic. Yeah, mm. sweeping. It was sort of a tongue-in-cheek in joke amongst the the BFAT team and everybody working on the film was that we wanted it to be a major motion picture, but of course it was one of those sort of joke but not a jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, you you joke about it, but that was definitely what we wanted to do was make something where people would go, "Holy shit! Okay, cool. That's that's a sweeping epic." This project's been around for a while, so this major motion mm-hmm. picture that you've been trying to make with BFAT Motel. B-Fat Motel, for me, always feels like a band. I guess we sort of started like that. So B-Fat Motel, we were a collective, a creative collective, and we started out of Varsity. So when, at the time, I was studying under you, I was linking up with Mike Matthews, the director, then also Sean Lee, the DOP, Daniel Mitchell, Mm -hmm. the editor, Jamie Mathers, the composer, Mornay Murray, the sound designer, and then a few others. And we decided off the back of... This really good collaboration that nobody was going to make it happen for us better than we could make it happen for ourselves. And we had this really great respect for each other. And we sort of had somebody in every discipline of a film, essentially. And so we decided to start BFAT Motel as a company. We, we ran for probably the first three or four years as a creative collective, trying to get different projects off the ground. And, of course, being 22-year-olds, like launching into the industry with these massive goals – there were successes and there were failures. And then, so Tommy, those early days, I mean, you mentioned that this is sort of 10 years this year since this, since you came back from some sort of a yeah. recce for Five Fingers. Can you tell us about that? So we were, we'd had a couple of projects stall in development and we were getting frustrated and we've been doing sort of MTV work and corporate work and we were in a phase where we were trying to run the company as a company and make enough money to survive and we thought, well... That commercials is the way to go. So we find ourselves moving into sort of commercials space, which is not at all where I want to be. And it wasn't really where we wanted to be as a company. And we'd, we'd saved up a bunch of money. And at the same time, we'd sort of been commissioned by a producer who I won't mention his name, but he's, he's a producer and the mm. producer, sort of, you know, the old <laughs> school sort of roll your eyes sense of the word. And he'd hired us to rewrite a script for a project that he'd bought out of the States, which is a really good idea. And it involved a sort of a circus in a small town and a bunch of things. So we hit the road to to visit small towns and, and circuses. And that project sort of fell apart, I think, as we were in the leaving stages of going out on this mission. But we carried on traveling anyway. We passed a road sign for a town called Marseille. And we were so intrigued by the fact that there was a Marseille in South Africa that that became part of the mission was let's uncover and explore. It's an idea that there were these European-named colonial towns that had dried up and sort of crumbled to dust, but the townships attached to those had become these towns in their own right became such an interesting theme for us that that became what we were looking at. And then we went back and Mike and I dedicated October 2009 to just being on the road, and we did about 8,000 Ks around the country, found Lady Grey, which is where we ended up shooting the movie, and we lived there for the rest of the month just writing and breaking the story and 
Yeah. I love that because it's interesting. It's like in the three worlds of screenwriting, you talk about the external source as well, which is research. Mm. One thing about The Five Fingers is when you watch it, it's steeped in a place. Yeah, we lived there, went back every year for the seven years it took to get the film made. We would go back and spend time, or I'd go back sometimes and just write there. And meet people and spend time in the community and get the buy-in from the people of the town because also this film was essentially a co-production with the town. There was no way we were just going to go in and make it without everybody being involved in it. They were very receptive, but there was almost this air of curiosity about, okay, you guys are going to make this movie. Oh, what? No, it's a, it's a black cowboy movie. Oh, cool. No, okay. I think the curiosity factor, every time we came back, they'd get really excited because, you know, what are we going to – like, are, are we getting any closer to making this movie or not? For two or three years, I think, when we were so sure it was going to happen quickly, we'd go back and say, this is the year we're coming to shoot. This is the one. And they'd be like, great, okay. And then sort of five or six years go by, and we'd go back and be like, yeah, no, it's still going to happen. And they'd be like, really? <laughs> did you screen it there eventually? Has yeah. the community seen yeah, it? And yeah. how did they respond? Great. So we went back just before we released in cinemas here. We went back and we did a big outdoor screening there for the community. So just I wanted to speak to you about the, the writing process of writing this, this script, which is – it's multi-protagonist. There's a lot going on. There's mm. history. There's flashbacks. In the three worlds of screenwriting, you talk about external sources well, imagination well, and memory well. Now, it sounds to me like a lot of this was like imagined and made up. Like, Where did you get the characters from? Huh. I really enjoy writing the sort of tortured, conflicted protagonist. And I'm sure that's a lot to do with my own internal. I think so. You know, yeah, <laughs> I'm not own, saying anything. No, my own internal. I mean, the three wells, you know. Yeah, like, it's in uh, there. Yeah. It, but this was a combination of history but not being historical, wanting to, to sort of base it on, on realness without being a, a historical retelling. You know, we would chat to people about similar stories that had gone down and how communities were treated by those towns and I don't think in the movie there's anything that's literally based on a true story, but the sorts of stories we heard were horrific, you know, about how whole communities were burnt down because the town wanted to put a dam where the township was. And, you know, people were like, this is where you put us five generations ago. This is where you put our parents, and now you, now you want us to move. And so they would just raise their communities to the ground and go, okay, well, now you have to move. You have no choice. So I wanted to sort of play on that idea of historical damage, obviously, of the, of the country in the past, but then also looking at today, the politics of South Africa today, find a way to explore that without it being sort of on the nose and, and preachy, but I think it should ask questions. And then also be a really gripping character piece and delve into the psychology of a lot of really interesting characters, which I guess mostly just come from inside. And then also be a really like thrilling genre piece with some mysticism and some action, but not gimmicky sort of over the top, like fun action, sort of raw violence with consequence where people go, okay, this isn't like a Kev shoot 'em up, let's save the town. It's, I mean, there is that element, but there's a weight to all the violence, I think, and I don't think it glorifies violence, hopefully. And then playing to the genre of the Western as well. Yes. So as a genre experiment. So, the, yeah, there was a lot going on, which I think is the benefit of having seven years to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite Absolutely. is what brought it together. So with the genre thing, I'm quite interested in, mm. did you watch a lot of Westerns? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I st watched, read, read Western books, scripts, books about Westerns. There was a period where we sort of immersed ourselves in the Western as a genre. Because that trick is how do you balance between being very authentically a Western without it being a pastiche of what a Western is and then at the same time be as authentically South African as you can be. So that was a that was a balancing act. I think the whole way through we were trying to juggle between Mike and I how much is too Western and how much is not Western enough. Interesting. And, and try and balance that. And thinking about the characters, the archetypes of the Western mm. 
give you a sort of base platform to work from. Mm. So it actually frees you up to get a lot more interesting psychologically with the characters because you have this base understanding of who the mayor is or the chief of police or the pastor of the church. People understand that as a as a genre trope. Mm. How to say yeah, I know. You don't have to like introduce someone mm-hmm. in their backstory, but you can get, weirdly enough, you can get quite deep quite quickly. Yeah. If you, I think you that's know. it. You can go deep quickly because people understand sort of intrinsically what this character yeah. is and what exactly. their role in the story is yeah. as well, which is why genre is actually an amazingly interesting place to explore real shit. People understand on a base level what it's about, mm. and then you can take it further. For people who choose to go there, like not everybody does. So yeah. people can watch it and go, ooh, fun western they saved the town. Oh, look at those themes. That's what that film's about. So, yeah, it's amazing that you mentioned that because when I was flying over on, on Emirates back from London, the, I saw your movie. I saw it before at the cinema, but I, but I was watching it again. And I also, the person who was sitting next to me on the seat was this, this guy who works in the embassy, one of the South African embassies. And I said to him, hey, you've got to watch this movie. He kind of was, I think he was like three quarters of the way through and like turned to me and he said, this movie is about the new South African government. <laughs> and he was, he was so in tune. And I didn't even, you know what? I didn't see this really the first time I, I saw it. I didn't look at that level. Mm. He was like, there were people who were your colleagues and who were your friends in the past during the struggle. And now that it's like post-struggle era, these people have turned into these like corrupt people that you can't trust. Was that something that you consciously wrote in the story? Mm, yeah, I mean, it's bigger than that. It's about the legacy of the damage done, really, because you trace it back to that original hurt. These guys are manifesting a cycle of violence that was committed to them. If you look at the Fingers, who were the original freedom fighters, they become the power brokers in the town. One by one, they sort of fall or, or become caught up in what's going on in different ways. Tao, the protagonist, not excluded from that either. You know, he's involved with that too. And then these guys end up being the ones who fight to free the town, but at the same time, are they the people that take the town forward, or is there another generation who should be the ones to start again? I uh, want to talk about one character in particular, Spokal. Wow. I mean, the the character, I don't know, the actor who played him, I don't mm. know what happened there. And I don't know if he was written <laughs> like that when you wrote it, but that character stayed with me. That's an interesting one too. I don't know where he came from as a character, but the idea that there needed to be someone who was not of the town, who was an outside force coming in and, you know, somewhere between an Iago through the Joker, I guess, even as mm-hmm, a sort of like mm-hmm, base level mm-hmm. comparison, but someone whose grand aims or his great sort of place in the story is not he wants the town or he wants the water or he wants the gold or whatever it is. He's literally just about the people. He's almost like the conscience of the story. And what he's doing is pushing everybody in the story to manifest the truest versions of themselves. So when he's turning the screws on the mayor, it's not because he wants the time for himself, but he's exposing this weak, pathetic man who's willing to do to, to make the biggest compromises and sacrifices for something he thinks is progress or, or, for, or for his own aims. And so likewise with everybody there, the chief of police who's just become exactly the thing they were fighting against. Mm. And the ghost is there to you know, cut him down to size over and over again. And so for me, that was the interesting thing about the character, someone whose place in the story is to poke into people's cracks and push them apart. And we've had amazing responses to him as well from people because he does have this otherworldly sort of quality. And I'm not convinced he's a villain either, you know, and this he's almost <laughs> the, the most moral person in the film because... He lives according to this code of what he believes is, you know, judgment of peace. He's a peacemaker and a judge. He comes in to push people to become the truest versions of themselves, and that includes Tao, actually. Mm-hmm. 
as a hero caught up within layers of angst and violence and this tendency towards this dark place. I mean, what is he really doing except pushing him to become the hero he was always meant to be the whole time? And we've had people sort of respond to him in ways that we didn't even expect. You know, people who've asked, is he even really there or is he collective uh-huh. manifestation of these wow. internal conflict? Or is he the ghost of colonialism, which I really like too. I love these readings that people give to something yeah. once you put it out there. Hey? Yeah. And so that what was interesting about the evolution of the character was, I think, in terms of what he represents in the story, was always there. But there were different versions of how he would play out. Mm-hmm. So the original, I think, was a lot more of a sort of build-a-butcher charismatic mm-hmm. figure who was, like, very worldly. And he led this gang. And he was quite a, like, he was a, a raconteur. And he was the man who would, mm-hmm. like, sit down at the bar and go, let's t- tell me who you are. Like, I can see what you're all about. And then as it evolved and took on a bit of a more mystic mm-hmm. sensibility about it, we were casting, and it was really hard to find the right person mm. to play that character. <laughs> so it was probably maybe as close to a month before shooting. We casted Munin Lee, who's amazing. Like She was phenomenal yeah. on this film. She gave us so much support. We had amazing American co-producers as well. Asgan, you're on at Game 7 Films out of New York. And because this is happening via remote, we're on the ground casting. They're over there going, like, we're almost ready to come, but do we have Sporko yet? Do we have the ghost? And going, well, no, we don't. But, you know, like, don't worry, Munin's on it. And and she presents this veneer of calm, of course, you know, because she's at the top of her game. And only afterwards, she sort of admitted that she'd been lying awake every night, running through every actor in the country in her oh. brain. And then... I think I was in Lady Grace. She said, come to Joburg and see this character, see this actor, Hamilton Dlamini, who I didn't know very well, but mostly knew him through his comedy work. He just wasn't what we'd imagine the character as, but she said, just come, just trust me and come. Wow. And so, of course, Minion says, trust me, you go, yeah. okay. And Hamilton comes in as a big personality because he is. He's a big, robust stage actor, so he, he knows how to fill the space. And his first reading, his entry into the bar where he comes and he says... If it's a stray, it's bark is worse than its bite or whatever the line was. I can't remember exactly. But he comes into the room and he's like, Ah, yes, the ghost is back to haunt you again. You you like being in that cage. And I sort of sit in there going, Hmm, that's not really what we had in mind. And Munin says, Hold on, calls him over, and they have a two-minute conversation very quietly in the corner. She's telling him, Look, his strength doesn't come from outside, it comes from inside. He doesn't need to force his mm. menace onto people, like bring it out from inside. Comes in his second reading is what you see in the movie. Wow. Just that deep, Incredible. brooding, like ghostly figure and jaws on the floor. And it was like, well, there he is. Amazing. You know? So that was about a month before we shot. Uh, he really reminded me a lot of Marlon Brando's character in Apocalypse Now. He's uh, yeah, just yeah. kind of yeah. this yeah. presence that seeps into everything. And when you're talking about him earlier, I just thought to myself, he's kind of almost represents chaos. Okay, that's yeah. my interpretation. Yeah. And chaos is going to push one person one way to sort of either join the chaos and feed into the evil or fight the chaos and try and restore order and be the good guy. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so I really loved that character. Oh, cool. The casting of being in the room, what was great about Minin was she let us be in the rooms. Well, in fact, we took over the process for a while. So I've read with every single person in the film, including the supporting cast, the extras and all that. And that's great as a writer because you sort of figure out what someone's strengths are as an actor and you can tweak the characters to play to who they are. And also having cast the film sort of five years before we shot it also helped because then you know that Kenneth and Corsi is going to be playing your mayor. You find little ways to play to his personality. And then, of course, all these guys were so good that then when they got onto set, they just blew us away by taking the material further than we even thought the woman, yeah, who in the end 
is pivotal. Mm. Was that a choice you made around around representation of women in the story, or, or like? Yeah, that was a choice we made. Obviously, being a western, it's very man heavy, and that is like one of the big flaws in the movie that we acknowledge. Although it is sort of critical of that too, because the men do so much damage. There's a very toxic masculine thing mm-hmm. where these guys are trapped by their own angst of being men and being heroes and, and and being in power. And Lorato was one where we really tried to make her not just be a device, probably with mixed success, if I'm honest, mm. um, but we really wanted her then to rise up and have almost be the one to be like, just stop it, you fucking fools. You know, yeah, like the one yeah. who finally ends this like big song of dance and charade is her so we wanted to give her a powerful kind of moment like that yeah it's difficult yeah? I mean it's really tricky it is to it get that actually right. you know from a, from a production point of view as well I think we probably shot 80% 85% of what was on the page and that was a cut down version so <laughs> while we were in pre-production two weeks before we shot I had to take 13 pages out of the script because wow. we couldn't afford to shoot the ideal version mm. of the script we didn't have the time or the money. And then so trying to figure out how to take something. Mm. In a story kind of that complex, figure out how to take parts wow. without the whole thing falling apart. And then we shot 85% of what was on the page or maybe 90 but because of weather and time, we didn't get 10. So there, there was a little bit of jiggering in the edit that we had to figure out. One of the strands that was cut was the female cop who you sort of see glimpses of through the movie was a bigger character in the uh-huh. script. Her place was sort of as a good cop and as the corrupt force is sort of collapsing around that she rises up to be a bit more of a hero ah. and at the end of the film she's one of the people who's going to take the story forward but as it turned out we just didn't get to shoot it there wasn't enough there to to put them in the movie without people going mm, doesn't really feel like it fits and that was interesting as a writer because a lot of the time if you sell a script to a producer and they go off and they make it and you see the final version of the film and you go what the hell's that that's mm. not my movie you sort of now like it's the natural order of things that things will change and it was really interesting to go through that in every stage and know why and be able to go, okay, like I absolutely understand why that is the final version of that. Basically. Two more questions before we end. Do you have a space that you write, uh, like a room uh, or a and, – and can you tell me a bit about that space? I have a chair. Yeah, I have a, I have a writing chair, which is – it's like this – I guess it's probably like a 1950s or 60s lazy boy. It's sort of like a little bunged up, and it's not. Uh, it doesn't all work properly anymore. Like the footrest doesn't work anymore. But it's. I, I got a Milliton Market probably ten years ago for a steal. It's like a beautiful old chair, and the guy wanted five or six hundred bucks, and I think I had three hundred rand on me, and I was like, "Look, dude, it's the end of the day. Let's do this deal now." Like I really want this chair. So you sold me this chair for three hundred bucks. It's in my lounge at the moment but it's been in different parts of my house. Fantastic. I love it. Love, <laughs> it. love it. Writing chair. It's Writing good. It's, chair. Got some, it's got some mojo, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're yeah. meant to have that chair. I think so, yeah. Um, and then the second question is, if you had to give advice to writers who are stuck facing writer's block, not being inspired, maybe being scared to write? I understand that sometimes it comes and sometimes it doesn't. So I think finding your people is a big one, finding your trusted sounding boards or people you know you can bounce ideas off and you'll get honest but constructive feedback I think is important because that can sometimes unlock. I really like collaborating so I generally don't like on Five Fingers or Apocalypse or whatever it is or some of the other projects the director or whoever the key collaborators are we'll talk about it a lot and we'll bounce it around a lot and then I'll go away and I'll work and I'll sort of present things as we go so with Fingers 
we were on the road, Mike and I, so we talked a lot about the story. And then in the town, I sit and I knocked out an outline, and he read that and fed back into it. So we got back to, let's say, Cape Town now in 2009. And then over the rest of the year, I wrote the kids section of the movie. And that was the first thing that got sent out to everyone. And that sort of set the tone of the feel. And then everybody was like, okay, great. Like, we see where this is going. And that's Mike and it's Sean. And it's the whole sort of BFAT creative core. And then Dylan at Stage 5, we work a lot with now. So he's become part of the creative brain trust as well. And then I also think, like, tell your true stories, I, it's it's funny. I feel like development in South Africa, we don't really have a development space like other industries do. We have very little money for it. I mean, fingers, we just took a fat knock and said we're going to invest everything else and eat beans for the next five years if we have <laughs> to to get it made prophetically. For people who can't do that, I think it's tough because you want to go and get funded development and then you're sort of answerable to a lot of voices telling you what your story should be. And I think it's not actually very healthy. I think yeah. development in South Africa isn't geared towards helping people realize the best version of the story they want to tell. I think it's a lot of times somebody coming and telling them, this is, I see your story. This is your story. This is what your story needs to be. And, and there's a way to do that that's constructive. And there's a way to do that that's destructive. And I think a lot of people get caught up in that going like, I just can't get my movie made, so I'm going to write something for what the market wants. Then you go, okay, well, what the hell is the market? Like William Goldman said it, you know, nobody knows anything. Yeah. Nobody knows what you like. Rest in godly peace. But yes. that adventures in the screen trade and what lie did mm. I tell were also two sort of like fundamental books that we used to, Mike and I used to read, and sort of like, oh, holy shit, what a crazy industry this is. But nobody knows, you know, and so here you see something that does well. Like happiness is a four-letter word, and suddenly everybody's trying to knock out the next <laughs> urban black rom-com because they think that that's mm. the, the gold mine in the market or the Candace armies, and you name it, whatever it is, it doesn't work like that. I think something like Five Fingers was it was it took a long time to get made because people were like, okay, we get it, we like it, we like the script, but we just don't really see it, so we're not mm. going to put any money into it. You know, like we had Mnet turned us down three times on it when we were looking for funding and, sure. and eventually when we made the movie they came and they watched it and they were like oh, this is great we, we see it now we mm. just didn't see what you were trying to do I mean it could have been a, a total disaster of course but I think it wasn't so in a sense we're the lucky ones but if you don't stick to what that truth is of the story you want to tell and take a swing at it or jump off the cliff or whatever mm. like whatever sort of cliche you want to use mm you'll never know if it was going to work or not. And sure, it might crash and burn, but then, you know, pick yourself up and try again, I think. so. And I think it's easy to say that when you've done it. But I think the one thing that kept us going was because we had this crew of people and every time one of us was sort of freaking out going, like, we can't do this again. The project fell apart spectacularly twice. We were in prep. We'd crewed up. Mm. We were starting to pay people, and one of the investors just didn't put his money in. Then. And after two weeks of trying to contact them, eventually called me back and said, I actually don't have the money anymore. Can we just do it next year? Jeez. And so that fell apart, taking like half of my life with mm. it. And if you don't have the right people around you to put yourself back together and try again. It's like tell your truth and have the people around you to I support so. you. Yeah, that's the, <laughs> that's the short version of the long rambling answer. Cool, yeah. man. Thanks so much. And we've got a little tradition here at the Three Worlds Podcast, which is we give people this thing here. Ah. This is a little cheese ball Ooh, thank you. wrapped up in a little plastic or paper, grated onto your pasta. Ah. It's a locally made little cheese ball. Wow. And it's it's rather tasty. Thank you. It smells and looks delicious. Thanks, guys. This Thanks. has been awesome. Thanks cool. for having me. And this is, a, like, I just have to say this is really fun to come in and talk like this, having gone sort of... 15 years ago, you having Crazy. been one of the first people that set me on the screenwriting journey. So well, It's a pleasure being here, listening to your wisdom. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, thanks guys.
Thank you for joining us for the Three Wells podcast. Please subscribe for our updates and we'll catch you next time.